Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Mount's been blowing glass as an artist and designer in Australia and internationally for over 30 years. Watching glass being blown is spectacular. It's very immediate and colourful. Organic forms take shape before your eyes. The wobbly blobs of glass distort and coalesce in the most uncoordinated way. Unless it's under control of a master blower, then the process seems effortless. It's a balance in real time of extreme heat, a thick, heavy fluid and gravity. How's that sound so far? Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a craft that requires teamwork, and its practitioners have a remarkably close-knit community. Nick has been at the forefront of the Australian art glass community for decades and has a bunch of books written about him. He has conducted workshops and exhibited all over the world. In the early 1990s, he was head of the Jam Factory Glass Workshop in Adelaide, Australia, and has run private studios to boot. We're in one of them now. Nick Mount, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thanks very much. Proud to be here. When you meet somebody at a party, how do you describe yourself? A designer, artist, glass blower? Depends who I'm talking to. I like, I'm a craftsperson. I like to be thought of as, be, uh, as a maker, but it uh, definitely depends who I'm talking to. You know, in an uh, American... Um, gallery at a um, the launching of an exhibition you've got to be an artist <laughs> at the jam factory I love to be a craftsperson here you know people can see what I am and it is an odd thing because uh, mostly I'm a dad or an uncle or a partner or whatever but you know most of us talk about ourselves in terms of our craft and so, you know, you, I'm not a dentist. I'm a glassblower. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about, what, what, how do you think about yourself? I was a maker. You know, I think that, um, well, my earliest, earliest, earliest memories are at uh, kindergarten and being excited about uh, nailing a nail into a piece of wood with a hammer at kindergarten before I went I to school. I remember that too. Yeah, and sawing a piece of wood. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't be allowed to do it now, but sawing a piece of wood and mm. getting that enjoyment of uh, the tool and the material and stuff. And, you know, of course, you don't think about it in those terms, but those are my earliest memories. And I'm not academic. I'm not intellectual in those kind of uh, traditional terms. You know, how I think of myself as, as a maker. Have you ever thought of yourself as a revolutionary? No way. No, I'm just following on in traditions that have been set well before me. Yeah, right. So you were um, mucking around with materials when you were a little kid, and um, mm. is it something you always did? Is this kind of like... Sure. I wasn't very good at school. No. <laughs> and uh, I think my parents were worried about me while I was at school, not succeeding all that much, and my grandmother was worried about me a lot too. And she gave me a little... Um, well, she encouraged me to play music a lot, 
And she, I can remember her saying to me, calm down, Nick, play music, play music. And uh, that is about the, you know, the way that I didn't necessarily just sort of generally fit in at school or whatever. But that craft um, was something that I could do. And I, I did all sorts of home things vitreous enamelling and working on projects in my father's workshop and all those kinds of things when I was small. And the first real relationship I got at school at all was with my art teacher, yeah. Hugo Shaw. Is he famous? Is he well-known? Oh, he's famous in my mind, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's a well-known South Australian painter. Yeah, yeah. Still going. So the next question I've got here is, was there a moment when you're inspired to do glass buying or at least making all the time you know was there a person event or an exhibition like was it Hugo Shaw or was it somebody else no Hugo encouraged me to go to art school he encouraged me to believe that my hand skills were worthy of um, you know concentrating on and then so I went I went to art school after I left school didn't get on very well there either because it was a sort of a formal system in South Australian School of Art so I went to Gippsland to an open system uh, an open course at the Gippsland Institute of Advanced Education, where there was a few people went from South Australia and people came from all over Australia to go mm. to that school for its open system. There was no times or exams or assessments or, you know, there was nothing you had to, you didn't have to go to lectures and pass something. And so it was during the 70s. 70s, yeah. And Whitlam was in, you know, he's the boss. And for some reason, or some weird reason, Australian people... And the people in charge at that time thought that the development of uh, education and the arts was an important, and our culture was an important thing. Mm. So it was just a weird little moment, a window of opportunity, and I was very lucky because I met an American guy who came to the school, yeah. and he wanted the kind of skills that I had because we were... Uh, in that system and I'd learned how to do welding and problem solving and you know being a sort of an independent kind of person and so I went with him on his tour around with the rest of his tour around Australia went to California with him and that I think we're led by people and the people that we think are great or fun or funny or important for some reason or other and so I went with Dick Pauline and I went with Dick to California yeah, yeah. And we saw the Californian craft studio type of movement, which was an amazing eye-opener, you know, where people went to university and learned a bunch of skills and then made partnerships at university and went out and set up their own studios and made stuff and sold it and became innovative through their knowledge of hand uh, skills and their materials and stuff. And it was just like so different to art schools here that were stuffy and formal and so I've worked in small studios all over California and in different schools with Dick. And then after that, we went to... Well, this was all on a grant from the Australia Council. $10,000 they gave us. And That's not bad for the 70s, though. Oh, yeah. And Pauline and I travelled. We got round-the-world tickets and we travelled and studied for that year on ten grand. Mm-hmm. And then um, we went to Europe and... As part of uh, the tour that we did, self-guided tour of glass places, we went to Venice and went to the uh, factories on Murano. Mm. You better explain what Murano is. Yeah, Murano is a little island 
as part of the Venetian archipelago, and that has hundreds and hundreds of years of glass blowing, hot glass glass blowing skills there, and uh, that's it's the mecca for Italian style glass blowing, and there were factories there that we visited and people that we visited that were that we had introductions to that were traditional Venetian glass blowers in the traditional Venetian factory in the style that had been going for hundreds of years. And I learned stories of those kind of people and those kind of skills and that kind of environment that really became important to me because that's the way that people really get to be able to be innovative in design and craft. But through knowledge of of themselves through their hands, knowledge of their material through their hands, immersing in the history of the development of the material and the craft. And doing it all the time. Doing it, learning it from when you're a little kid, you know. Lino started his apprenticeship at 12 years of age. And Lino's a master glass blower. Lino is the guy. He's the dude. Yeah, he's the best. Was um, was Richard, or Dick, was he a, a glass blower? Yeah, Dick Marquis, he was the guy that came to Australia and I met at school. Mm. And he was, uh, he studied architecture at um, Berkeley University and then went into design and into the glass department and got immersed in the California, new California glass movement and then went to Venice in the late 60s, I believe. I think it was the late 60s. And he worked in the Vanini factory on Murano and gathered a bunch of skills together and took them back to California mm. and, you know, pushed them and twisted them. I want to know, like, how you first... When did, what, was the, what was the moment you first saw glass blowing or glass, like art glass? Was that at Gippsland? Yeah. And Dick was a pioneer type of cowboy spirit that came into our school. Uh, with the purpose, and funded by the Australia Council, with the purpose of setting up a small glass blowing studio and blowing glass and demonstrating it within a couple of weeks. And so he had... Holy cow. Yeah, a breakdown blowpipe, and he came in with a list of staff that he wanted, and within a few days had a furnace built and burning and melting glass. Mm. It was just amazing to see. And then he was making stuff that was mind-blowing and still is that same kind of stuff that he was making then almost solo you know with the assistant of his girlfriend Raffi and a couple of other duds like me he was making stuff that was amazing you know absolutely and genuinely surprisingly great objects of glass art out of this little studio that he built in a couple of days and for me, you know, I've always loved a cowboy growing up. I love cowboys. And Dick Marcus was that cowboy who came to our school and demonstrated a fearless and adventurous way of approaching a material and yeah. a process. And working on it all the time. Oh, yeah. Getting those skills, honing yeah. those skills. He's got an exhibition opening next week in Tacoma, Washington, that is a huge survey show of his work I've forgotten the name of uh, of the show, but it's going to be a great show. And unfortunately, I won't be there. We're talking in late September 2019. 28th of September. 
So you went to Gippsland. Um, I'm curious about training now, mm. these days. Do you reckon you could learn glass blowing by YouTube, or do you have to have a teacher? <laughs> the trouble with glass blowing is you have to have a furnace, and you have to have a glory hole, and you have to have a better bench. explain what a glory hole is yeah. and a furnace. They better explain the whole yeah. thing. <laughs> well, Tell us how you do it. Yeah. It's one of those things that. Uh, like other materials you learn as a child you learn clay and mud and paint and a pencil and paper and you learn cardboard and wood and you learn how to saw a piece of wood and you learn how to crumple a piece of paper and you learn the feel of them you learn the feel of mud you know when you immerse yourself in it mm. and you learn about materials as a, a you know as a baby and you sort of grow up with it with a kind of knowledge, even metal, you know, you hold metal and you, you can bend a spoon and stuff, and you know a little bit about it, you know, tiny bits and pieces about it. You never get to learn about hot glass, which is wet glass and moving, you know, like glasses in a honey state, a hot, hot, super hot honey-like state. You never get to touch that at all, and you never get to anywhere near it until you're an adult and then you have to turn back into a child and learn it as a child would learn it making all the mistakes getting embarrassed you know making a fool of yourself dropping it on the floor absolutely messing it up and all that messing it up and all that learning process costs a fortune of money <laughs> it does because you've got to have a furnace which is a big hot oven uh, with the glass inside it that runs at, you know, between 11 and 1300 degrees centigrade, 24 hours of every day to melt and prepare the glass before you can even dip into it. There are, you know, tens of thousands of dollars involved in having a furnace. And then there's, or, so if the institution has the furnace, there's hundreds and hundreds of dollars involved in getting access to the furnace. And you need other small furnaces and you need kilns and you need blowpipes and specialist tools and you need protective gear and you need to be able to invest some quite a few hours in that productless environment while you're learning how to move the glass. Mm. It's playing. It's you've got to learn how to play and at a certain stage with every sort of development you go through that cycle where you play, 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 get serious, get a little bit more serious and then you decide you're going to make something with that play and make something that is has got something that's valuable to you or something else. It's the same cycle with everything, you know, the, the, the play all of a sudden you have to decide to make it serious and make something... <laughs> So it's really expensive and time-consuming. And in the small studio in the American contemporary glass art style of um, circumstance, it's a very stupid thing to do. Yeah, because the best glass has always come out of factories. It's my point of view. I'm sticking to it. But if you think about the glass that is really grand... You know, it's really grand. The glass that is awe-inspiring and full of wonder, it's come out of a factory somewhere. 
whether it's been hundreds of years, collective years of information and knowledge about the material, where there's constant charge and draw on the furnace in the hot glass, where there's, con- where there's relationships between dozens of people in the, in the factory, you know, the people that formulate the glass, that charge the glass into the furnace, that melt the glass, and then the glass blows that draw the glass and make the objects, and then the people that assist in all that process, and then the people that do the annealing, and then the cutting, grinding, polishing, finishing, the packing and shipping of the glass. It's not one lonesome dude in their dumb little studio drawing on every ounce of information they've got in their tiny little solo brain trying to come up with something innovative you know that just the maths on that doesn't work to me and you know if you have a studio or a factory where there might be let's just say 15 people working and they've all been working in it for 10 years how many years of collective knowledge is mm, that? Centuries. And how many, how much collective skill is there? How do you fit within that? Because you've kind of look. This is not true, but you have, you're solo now. Mm. Can you talk about your personal situation with reflecting what you've just talked mm. about? You know, factory wise. Yeah, well, I bought into the American craft movement then, and I saw the Venetians working the glass in the seventies. I was really interested and excited about the material because it was dangerous and because it was almost unattainable. It, you know, it's an extremely difficult thing to get close to. You can never become a real friend of the hot glass. You can't cuddle it and hug it and kiss it and stuff. It's always at arm's length. Mm-hmm. You ask it nicely to come along with you on a bit of a journey and all that's really intriguing to me. So I got involved with it and we came back to Australia then and set up our little, small studio, Pauline and I, in Gippsland and started blowing glass in that American style, you know. Was we, it just you and Pauline? Yeah. And then Is we, Pauline a glass artist? Does she? No, but she was at art school. Yeah. And uh, yes, she is a glass artist, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it takes all of the business to make it work. Yeah. You know, you can't just have the dumb glass blower. <laughs> You've got to have everything else at the same time to make yeah. a glass business, arts business. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, she was there at art school and we went to America together, we went to Europe together, we set up our studio together yeah. and uh, started making jugs and jars and bottles and bowls really badly, you know, because I hardly had any skills and there was no other studios private studios in Australia. Were you using the studio in the Gippsland art school? No, we set up, we borrowed $5,000 and set up our own furnace and stuff. And that's all it took in those days. God. Yeah. With the guarantee of uh, the loan from my father, we borrowed $5,000 and moved out of the country into a small milking shed. And uh, we, we... I built a furnace and, you know, all the equipment that we needed and I had it going within a month and uh, travelled around to craft stores around Victoria and sold what I could make in the month and then I did it again. And that was Bungery? Bungery. It was actually Yunnar South. The Yunnar South is a district in Gippsland that is just to the west of Bungery, which is to the west of Bungery East. (laughs) 
<laughs> Upper Budger at least. <laughs> yeah, but that's where we, we set up in Yenar South. How far first. away from Melbourne is that? 100 miles, two yeah, hours right. in the car, in the Latrobe Valley. It's a beautiful part of the world, isn't it? It's lovely. It's kind of depressed, you know, because of the power generation, the coal mines and stuff. But uh, physically, the Streslaki Ranges are mm. extremely beautiful. Mm. It's My cold parents have and a wet. farm there. Do they? Where at? Uh, in uh, Ellenbank, which is south of Warrigal. Oh, yeah. yeah. It is God's country. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. That's uh, asparagus country, isn't it? Uh, flowers, potatoes, lots of beef. Mm. Yeah, well, the Streslakis are country. mainly dairy and they're taller and they used to be big timber, of yeah, course. Lots of timber. Yeah, timber. Yeah, God, yeah. Mm. These huge trees up there. Mm. My God. Mm. Trees the There's a tree the close to Budgeree as yeah. a site, a sign that says, this is where the tallest hardwood tree yeah. in the world used to be. Yeah. <laughs> the local uh, people chopped it down to see how tall it was. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I read a history of Gippsland and that story was in there yeah. and it was like 140 metres tall. It yeah. was like... True story. True story, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> I think the tallest tree in the world now is like 110 metres or yeah. something yeah. in um, California. California. Yeah. But some of those trees in Victoria yeah. and Tasmania were nuts. Well, the tallest tree, I think the tallest tree in the world is in Tassie and it used to be called the Mount Tree because my uncle went down no there way. and was the first dude to measure it. <laughs> and then since political correctness came in, it's changed to a number. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not the Mount Tree anymore. That's boring. Yeah, boring. Dead Let's boring. change it back. That's I say, be... yeah, it should be the Mount Tree. Were your parents supportive of what you were doing? Oh, yeah, they were, because they they were happy that I was doing anything at all. They How were... much faith in you did that? No. Oh, <laughs> you know, if, if you're not good at school, if you're not good at school then you're a problem. Yeah. You know, Were just, you going to private schools? Did you yeah. come from... Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So... And not, not even that helped. <laughs> Maybe it was a hindrance. Yeah, no, I doubt it. But it was, you know, uh, a thing where it, it wasn't cool to be a tradie. Only one guy in my school went on to do a trade and a few of us went into Over how many years... <laughs> One guy had a like Oh, well, in my year, my graduated yeah. year, 1969. And, uh, but the, uh, most of the top stream went into medicine. And if you're not, if you weren't there, it was, you know, you had a, I think it was believed that you had a difficult row to hoe. <laughs> but anyway, my parents were really supportive. And that, like, my grandmother always thought the arts were important. She was a German, um, Bross Valley type. Yeah, right. And my father's family, although I didn't know them all that well, they were French and English and they were adventurous type of champagne makers. I thought he was all, my dad particularly was always happy and my mum was happy. But dad, dad was happy that I was in the arts and then very proud when, uh, when we got a small business going. Did they buy pieces? Every now and then, a few. Yeah. They would think a lot. So you're the only one out of your siblings that's involved in creative pursuits. Yeah. Although my sister, Marianne, is a lactation specialist, which I regard as being one of the most important jobs in the world. Very creative. And uh, life and death, you know, drama, tiny little babies trying to survive and their mothers being in charge of survival. 
and so she she works really hard on that and I think that's a great job. Do you know when my son Lou was born there was a huge problem getting mm. him to feed properly mm. and it was over a Christmas break. Mm. Man, mm. that was just such a hard time. Mm. Well, Marianne goes out day and night. Yeah. On a phone call, she'll go anywhere and help the, help people that have they're in the depths of these most amazing mm. traumatic mm. times. Yeah, because that little baby's you know that's everything. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. it's a focus. Yeah. Mm. How did you get your first clients? Well, when I went to. Um, when we went out to Gibson and set up our studio, I had no doubts, you know, <laughs> no doubts. And uh, so I worked for a month and I wrapped up all the work, the little jugs and jars and yeah. misshapen bits and pieces that I could make, put them in the washing baskets and in the back of the ute and I drove to Melbourne and I drove to a craft shop and uh, it's called Rosie's in Ligon Street and uh, I, I walked in there and Rosie was there, barefoot, largish woman, red hair, really striking hippie. And I said, I'm making glass. And she said, well, give us a look at it. So I unwrapped it and put it on the bench. And uh, she had never seen hand-blown glass before. Mm-hmm. She didn't know what was good or bad quality, mm-hmm. what was exciting or boring. She didn't know what was expensive or cheap. She didn't know, you know, anything about it, which, of course, is right. You wouldn't. There wasn't a glass crafts movement in the country at the time. Mm. But she bought stuff, a few things, and then I said, where should I go next? And she told me where to go next, the distal fink. And then I asked them where to go next, and I went mm. out to Berwick to a stained glass shop, and I mm. sold it all. I went back and worked another month. And I did that again, for, and it was a monthly cycle where I would mm. do that, and then I would go to other stores around Melbourne because there was a lot of craft shops, little small mm. craft shops. I was selling things for seven or eight or twelve dollars each, and uh, so it wasn't a big investment. But then I would go to a country area, you know, up to Aubrey Wodonga. Or up along the coast, Marimbula, Pambula, up mm. there. Or then I would drive to Canberra, or then I'd mm. drive to Sydney. Yeah. The jam factory was going then, but they didn't take any of my work because I wasn't working in South Australia, even though I was South Australian. They didn't really take any of my work until 1980, I reckon. Yeah. I think their policies would be very different these days. Very different now, yeah, although different. they could be the same. Yeah, the same. Did but you ever have a day job? I tried at one time. Didn't work out. <laughs> what was the job? <laughs> <laughs> was it you or was it the job? Oh, it was me, God. The first, we came back from America, the Caulfield Institute, of Caulfield Institute, mm called me. It was before they were called Monash. Monash. That was 1975, end of 75. They were setting up a degree course in visual arts and they wanted a glass department there. Mm. So they called me and asked me to come and set up a glass studio. They gave me a 10-week contract to set up the glass studio. I pulled in favours from everywhere. (laughs) I built the studio in 10 weeks on the fifth floor of a building that didn't have a lift. (laughs) I carried... Everything up five floors of stairs, and I built the studio. And then it took them 
and they never hooked up the gas and electricity to it but while I was there until I ran out of patience and I left and set up our own studio in Gippsland. Gippsland. Yeah. So that was a very bad experience of a job. And then the other bad experience of a job I had was when I went to work at the jam factory. Yeah, right. 1990-something. Yeah. 90, I'm going to say 94. Mm. No, I think it was might have been earlier than that. Yeah. But don't ask me anything about any number because I just don't do it. You don't do numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. My brain doesn't work on numbers. No. It's a source of embarrassment, but what can I do? Does Pauline's brain work on numbers? Yeah. Yeah. What a team. Yeah, I know. Do you know, you told me once that it'd be very difficult to become a master in a craft, any craft, nowadays, yeah. because the artist or craftsperson would be doing everything. Yeah. Whereas once upon a time, yeah. the artist or craftsperson would be making yeah. making, making, making six days a week. It's all yeah. I do. Mm. And the wife or mm. the team, the rest of the, the team. team would be selling, they'd be yeah. marketing. And we're talking mm. 100 years ago or more. Mm. Yeah, I don't think, you know, it's hard to picture a blacksmith, you know, doing a whole business themselves. You know, it's just hard for me to picture because you do, in any small business, you have to do the whole business. You can't just do part of the business. You, you have can, to do, but you're not going to last very long. That's right. Yeah. You can't do it and survive. You see, you've got to do the, well, let's start right at the beginning. What does come first, you know? Is, is it the designing? No, because you can't design and be innovative until you know the material and know the process. The school, I don't know, an apprenticeship. So you start fiddling with things as an apprentice and you start gaining knowledge about the material as an apprentice. You start gaining knowledge about how it works, what you work with, how the tools work, how the finishing works, how it all works, you know, the material, in any material. And then you start to be able to become, with that group of knowledge, that bucket full of knowledge that you achieve or you attain you then be able to start thinking about who you are as yourself you you get the ability to say my name's nick and i'm a glass blower and with that knowledge you get to know where to sit you get to know you know in the whole scheme of things whether you're a, a labor or liberal voter how you relate to your friends what how you are physically, what clothes you wear, what kind of everything that is to do with you, with that kind of knowledge as a maker, as a craftsperson, as a person that's involved in materials, no matter if you're a chippy or a plumber or a dentist or a surgeon or a gardener or a bricklayer or whatever you are, a photographer, whatever you are, with the knowledge that you gain of yourself through your material and through your process, then you know who you are, you know what your politics are, you know how to engage in a conversation, you know how to discuss, you know, your daily life and what you think is important and what you don't think is important. And then you can think about, start thinking about design and being innovative. And then you can start, you know, making your whole business and you can present yourself in a marketplace and you can say, this is what I am. This is what I think is important. This is the value of my work. This is how I'm going to invoice. 
this is how I'm going to accept expect our relationship to go, all that kind of stuff. You know, it comes in that kind of order. Can you picture going to a gallery saying, I'm an artist, but, you know, I haven't started to paint yet. I haven't got a picture. I've got nothing to sell. You know, it just doesn't work that way. That's, for me, the process that it takes, you know, to get mm. to running a business, a whole business. If you're a, let's say, you've got a butcher's shop and you've set yourself up as a butcher, you know what kind of clothes to wear. You wear the butcher's apron. You need the knives. You need the cutting board. You need the shop. You need the glass front with the fridge in it. You need to be able to pack the stuff and present the stuff and you need knowledge about your material. You can't cut a chop the wrong way and present it as a bad chop, you know, a dumb chop. Nobody's going to buy it. It's that simple, you know, and you learn that as an apprentice. And you learn to be and to stand proudly behind the butcher's counter in the butcher's apron and have the conversation about meat to the client. <laughs> coming with me? Yeah, I totally am. It takes a long time and there's a big effort mm. and there's there's a lot of inquiry. There's a lot of intellectual pursuit involved in that. There's a lot of research into the history and there's a lot of asking questions. There's a lot of failure. There's a lot of failure. But that failure, you know, like I was saying, as a child, it's it, it's it's fun and funny and you fall over. Mm. And you, there is no failure doing it because uh, it's play. You break your arms mm. even and stuff. And you, uh, you learn how to run and climb and do all of those kinds of things as a child and make mistakes. But, uh, and we all in small business make mistakes as well. We mm. royally make mistakes daily or weekly or whatever. Mm. And very rarely, you know, do you come out of it unscathed. Yeah. But, uh, you come out learning, though. Learn and move on, yeah, yeah. hopefully. Or give up and get a job can do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's been known. <laughs> what are the most uh, amazing projects that you've been part of? Yeah, oh, what are they? No, yeah, what are they? Like, right. Tell us some stories, especially if they've involved people or personalities. Yeah. It's hard to say. Everything seems like really important at the time and then you, you know, drift on into something else. You get that sort of importance gets overtaken by the importance of the minute, of the day, of the new job. Mm, getting that invoice out. Getting the invoice out, paying the bills. But the uh, I think personal relationships are how you get into things and then what remains with you. It's not an object. It's a feeling and it's a friendship or it's a group of people that really work well together or are productive together mm. or it's the family you know those kind of things it's not not a thing even though you're making things you're making beautiful things and you're kind of there your identity too mm. it's not the objects no I think what what we do particularly in hot glass and I, don't, I can't talk about other things but it's a, it's a group effort in the studio. Like I was saying before, if you isolate yourself and if you do it all on your own, then you've got a very, very limited scope. So you work with a group of people, even the conversation or the influences you have around the studio, in and around the studio or socially. 
I don't think we ever go out and don't talk about glass. <laughs> Which part of the glass do you talk about, though? Do you talk about the business part of glass, or oh. do you talk about the the actual blowing or making? Which part is most important? You cannot have one without the other. It's all mm. the same story, you know. Mm. You can't have a, a, a finished object without everything that takes yeah. to build up to the it's finished the whole object. Thing. Yeah. yeah, one of the things that I thought as a woodworker was that you go to the pub and mm. you talk about money, mm. talk about the oh, business. Yeah. Mm. Maybe that's because talking about the craft, how you do something is probably something you, you show somebody maybe. or I don't know. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. Mm. I think, uh, well, I think and a lot of people, some of my friends say that I'm wrong. <laughs> but... What I think but is, wrong. <laughs> I think they're wrong. But I think that there is no position in, let's take the studio as an example of the broader story. I don't think there's any position that's more important than any other. And you can extrapolate this out in the, in the broader story, in the broad, in your whole life. In the studio, you know, is the. There's the master glass blowers, the first assistant, second assistant, third assistant quite often. There's the environment. There's the furnace with the hot glass in it. There's the other furnaces and kilns and the air conditioning or the ventilation. And the, um, further out you go, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that are involved. And which one of those people is the most important? There isn't one. In my mind, the master glass blower plays the role on the team. The first assistant plays as just first, not because it's most important, but just because it's first. And, and that's a number to me, and I'm not involved with how important it is. But then that person has a role, and the next person has a role, and everybody has a role. The cleaner has got an extremely important role. Some people think that the person that stacks the kiln with the finished product has a sort of a low roll. But if that person scratches every one as it goes away in the annealing oven, your day's work is got it's not it's not worth a penny. And if the person that's selling the work or the person's presenting the work or the person that's managing the schedule or the person that is opening the door and closing the door, all of those people have to me are parts of a level hierarchy, the same as in your family. You know, you can think from time to time you feel, you know, that you're more important than the next person in the family. But really, is the baby more important in the family or is the grandfather or the grand? I know the grandfather's not important in the family. I'll take that back. <laughs> but then which is the that most depends. important role in the family or the community? Is it mm. the bus driver? You know, I've, I've got that sort of... If I've, the bus drivers go on strike, there's real problems. There's real problems. If the garbage collectors go on strike, there's real problems. Well, if your lawyers go on strike... What if you can't get a plumber? There's probably not too much of a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. And so, you know, I think the people that you meet and the situations you get yourself in and the conversations that you have are mm. by far the most important sort of things in... Uh, my work life you know in the artistic community there are artists out there that don't make don't have to name any names all right i'm not talking about glass mm. although i could probably name a name in glass yeah. too but debate is well are these people more artists 
or should the maker, the technician, have as much of a name associated with an object that gets made? That's another hierarchy thing, and I think the conversation's not even worth having. <laughs> Which of us can we do without, apart from Donald Trump? You know, I think that there's, there's a place for all of those people, and there's a place and a role, an important role for every, every way that you can operate. Yeah. So you don't have a problem with somebody who's the superstar artist that all they do is business? No, yeah. not at all. I think that, well, I couldn't do it. I'm, I admire those people that have that capability, you know, to so do, I. do a business yeah. without, you know, and what, what kind of craft is that, you know? Manager. Managerial. Yeah, and it's yeah. a craft. Yeah. And I admire everyone that Lots involves themselves in, in a craft. If you can look after people and... Yeah. There are a few problematic crafts for me. It's uh, religion, <laughs> banking and teaching. Three problematic crafts. Religion, I can understand. Banking, I can kind of understand. Teaching? Absolutely. Those are the three crafts uh, whose uh, success or failure is based in faith. <laughs> It's true. Think about it. That is so funny. Yeah. Did you hear this from somewhere? Is this an idea you've just generated? This is my idea, yeah. Far out. <laughs> my dad was a teacher. Yeah. I've been a teacher. Mm. You've been a teacher. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, must have. I've, I have only ever been a demonstrator. Difference? Well, the teacher stands at the front of the class and tells you what to do, tells you what's true or not, tells you where to go. The demonstrator's there with the hands working. And then the student comes and takes up whatever they, mm. they've just they watched can see as a go, and then you're watching them. Yeah, you can know. And you, no, you just walk yeah. away. Yeah. So it's not like um, a I, sense of, I'll show you what to do, then we'll do it together, and then you go and do it. Sometimes it's a wheel together, you what to but do. that's a teamwork thing. Yeah. But uh, I don't believe there's an A, there's 10 easy steps to making a goblet, for instance. I will never write it down because always the first step is variable. There's variables in the first step. And where you go after the first step is determined by where you've gone wrong in the first step. And it's like, you know, blowing glass is like having children. Every step you make is to make up for the mistake you last made. So, you know, there's no right way of doing something unless the student has faith. That's bloody amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So there's only three, religion, banking and teaching. The law is edgy. (laughs) The law is edgy. It's not like driving a bus. I heard that there's a Google program that going to make, is, is going to make lawyers redundant because, like, you've got yeah. written law and this program yeah. will input your problem associated with the law and yeah. it will analyse it, spit yeah. out the result. Yeah. That's assuming that there are problems that are have been had before. Hmm. Assuming that innovation is not necessary. You are intellectual, you know. You can't escape it, even though you say you're not very good economically. Certainly a deep thinker. I'm curious about when you started your business, did you have a plan or was it really organic and ad hoc? Oh, no, we were hippies. So, organic and ad hoc. uh, What I wanted to do was to have a sustainable, you know, craft practice. Out in the bush, we had a veggie garden, we had our Mm. kids out there, Mm. a... uh, orchard 
we live quite a long way from anywhere and uh, that was my goal and that, that, that's a problem with a goal that's easy to achieve you know <laughs> you get it and then you've got it so then the, the whole business evolved from there because I wanted then to have natural gas town gas and three phase power and I wanted to be more in a marketplace where I got response from people mm. and was uh you know, more accessible, I think. You get pretty isolated out in the country, I think. Yeah, and you've only got yourself to rely on mm, mm. in the small business. I think having a challenge, new challenges all the time are really important too. I hate the word challenge, but I think that uh, because challenge is quite often something that somebody gives you or that it comes from exter- externally, it, I think being interested and emotionally drawn in or led by your material and your process, I think, is another thing. Mm. You know, and that's. I personally wouldn't see challenge as something that somebody's given you. I think it's mm. a self-generated. Mm. I decide what my challenge is, mm. so to speak, and I go and try and mm. get better at whatever it is that it, that challenge involves. Mm. And the challenge is just, I think, because people used it a lot on me when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> You were the challenge, were you? I was, yeah. Did you ever employ people, have apprentices? Yeah. Well, we we had part-time people that would come in every now and then when we were down in Gippsland, and then we employed people more regularly. And then at one stage we built our studio up to a point where we were in Port Adelaide and we had 15 people employed. Yeah, right. Mm. That's that's a big payroll to meet every week. Mm. And it was uh, it was a good plan, but it was at the end of the 80s, through the last half of the 80s, mm. and our interest rates went up to 24%. And there was a recession in Australia? Yeah, and then everything fell over. Mm. And the marketplace probably changed? The marketplace changed a lot, and it was a confusing time for many small businesses, you know. Mm. And I don't know, I'm not happy that it stopped working then and I would really like to um, do it again, you know, to have a small business like that, a small factory. Mm. But that's when I moved into the jam factory. Yeah, to give yourself a bit of a respite from the... No, not at all, because I wanted a factory and the closest thing we could do was at the jam factory. I took my business into the jam factory and employed people as if they were working in a factory. Is this before you came, became head of that workshop? That was when I became head of the workshop. Right. Mm. And that's when we started employing people as a group of people that would mm. work from 8 to 4.30, yep. take on commissions, design product, uh, go into a marketplace that I'd already established yep. and worked on that as, a, as the factory. You've said that the best work comes out of a factory. Mm. Do you think your best work came out of that time? Well, I only... I only stayed there employed for three years. That was one one full three-year contract I stayed employed for. Mm. But it was pretty hectic time establishing and getting that system established in the in the glass studio at the jam factory. So I didn't do any, hardly any work during that time. Mm. But then at the end of my period, I started making the scent bottle series. That was, that was a series that I still work on now. But my major exhibitions 
that's uh, followed on from there and my entry into the American exhibitions market followed on from that uh, development of the scent bottle series. And did you self-fund all those pursuits into the States and probably yeah, Europe yes. as well, I guess? Yeah. The Jam Factory history says that, says to the contrary, but I <laughs> definitely <laughs> self-funded all those. And with the assistance of the Crafts Board of the Australia Council from time to time, grants... Yep from the Crafts Board and from the Visual Arts Board, mm. the Australia Council. So if you could, you'd have a factory going now. Yeah, yeah. Employing people. Yes, I would. And your role would be? Product development design. So you wouldn't be blowing your product. You'd be I, figuring I, out what it might be. Well, as I'm doing now and always do, I work with people on commissions and do go through the process of designing and product development, sketching ideas, sketching conversations, uh, you know, coming up with a brief and making offhand uh, examples of the objects. You can see them around here. There's a brandy bottle I'm working on, a sparkling white glass that I'm working on. There are various things I'm working on constantly. And that design and product development takes handwork. Mm. You know, it takes actually, you know, coming up with an idea and thinking, can we make that? Is that possible to put into production? Is it possible to get that glass into a mould properly and then to uh, finish it into a functional mm. piece? You know, is that cork, uh, the cork bore right? Is it going to work? Can we get a cork from Portugal that will fit into that cork bore properly? Is it going to be strong enough around the neck? How do we reinforce the neck and the cork cap go on? All those questions. They can't be answered by a graphic designer or a pencil designer. They have to be answered in real life with the material. And to become innovative, you know, to become to come up with a design that hasn't been done before, I don't think that's possible if you sit, no matter how long you sit at a desk, clasping the pencil and in front of a piece of paper... I don't think that you'll ever be able to come up with anything that hasn't been done before unless you know the material and know the hands that are going to do it. Mm. Is this across materials or adjusting glass? I think it's across materials, but I don't know about the other materials. Yeah. I'm just a glass guy. Yeah, because there's a sense like wood that I know really well. There's some things you can do with it. And you'll be successful. There's some things that you can do with it and you won't be successful, mm. maybe over a period of time. Mm. So the designer would push those boundaries all the time. You know, if you were just a designer, you didn't know that, or even if you knew the material, but you didn't care about mm. what that material was going to do. Basically, wood expands and contracts in different moisture levels. Yeah. So if you design that goes against mm. that, then you could come up with something that's innovative, mm. a new shape, for instance, mm. or a new way things go together. Mm may not last very long, mm. but it might. Yeah. Now, the technician that says, no, you can't do that because blah, 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 mm. probably won't ever innovate. Mm. So there's kind of like, you know, yeah. you've kind of, to, to, to be that technician and to be that designer that can innovate, come up with something new. Well, I think that your example of the technician is not what I'm talking about. The technician, it would be a person that merely follows a brief. But the uh, designer that I'm talking about would be a person that actually designs in the material, Mm. makes things in the material and knows 
how far you can push it and pull it and you know what kinds of things might be able to be done and is able to push it a little bit further or ask it to do something else ask the material to come on the journey with you to maybe find something new but then if there is a possibility in that same world that um, let's say rapid prototyping technology it becomes available and you're able to build something you know that might be able to fit into your material your process or your design somehow or another and then the conversation with those uh, people with the other skills comes on and you're able to visualize some way of coming up with something new I don't think that anybody has come up with something new in glass for a long time. And a lot of people, you know, will talk about new in glass, but I don't think really, you know, well, the new things that come up in glass comes out of factories like thin film glass, mm. rhino glass, gorilla glass, willow glass. I've got no glass, idea what that is. But <laughs> willow glass, fibrance, uh, yeah. optic fiberglass, all those yeah. kinds of things that are all coming out of the factories. Yeah. and generating new possibilities for yeah. your screens and A designer might, might make use of those things. A designer might be able to make use yeah. of those things some But way there's no other. way a designer could actually... Um, I mean, I can't imagine it because those sorts of new technologies would cost a huge amount to mm. develop. Mm. Massive. Massive. Yeah. yeah. And a mistake in the development of those technologies is humongous. It's still... I'm, I just work on the simplest of levels, you know, as a craftsperson. Aim low to win. Aim <laughs> low to win. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to believe that. Because, because if you're going to employ 15 people from the perspective of a craft-based industry, you're actually talking about, like, the... Nobody employs more than two or three, I don't think, in any yeah. craft-based... But the glass thing is an interesting one when you talk about that because if you employ one, call them master glass blower, for wanting a better term, and that's not a gender thing, it's just what they're called. If you employ one master glass blower and then that person works it with a team of three others, that team can pull out, let's say, at the least 500 kilos a day into product. If it's a full-on team. That's, that's a lot of product. That's a lot of annealing, a lot of finishing, a lot mm. of cutting, grinding, polishing, a lot of packing and shipping. And, but before that, if you're going to make 500 kilos of bottles in a day, that might be, let's say, 500 bottles. So 500 bottles into small orders, your small order might be 1,000 bottles or 2,000 bottles. You've got a week of production there. Next week, you need a new design, new mm. customer, new molds, mm. new whole relationship with mm. a, a new client. So then there's the client relationship, the brief, the generating, the design, the prototyping, the mold making, the proofing, and then into the, into the production. So you need all those people leading up to the design, mm. uh, leading up to the production, and then the finishing. And so that, that's where all the people come, from the employment of one master glass blower in the team. Mm. Yeah, I get it. Um, what do you prefer? Do you prefer doing commissions like you've been talking about, or do you prefer making exhibition work? I don't think that one can come without the other. It today or forever? Today. 
Yeah, I don't know about forever. Um, let's talk about today. <laughs> because um, nobody's going to commission somebody to do, you know, an important, expensive work unless they've got a reputation. Nobody, mm. You don't get a reputation for free. You've got to establish your reputation by having exhibitions, mm. building skills, having exhibitions, reputation, commissions. You know, and so nobody comes to you and says, I want a bottle and I want some hundreds of bottles and all I've got to spend is so many hundreds of dollars per bottle unless they can attach a name to it and mm. screw it on, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's super important. Mm. It's a brand. Mm. If you could do just one of those, let's say you've got you've got a patron, which one would you pick? I would definitely go with the commissions. Would you? Yeah. So lots of relationships, lots of people you're dealing yeah. with. Yeah. New jobs, new briefs, new conversations, new industry partners. Really, uh, people excited about their product. Yeah, yeah. People excited about their innovation. So these people sound corporate. Well, marketing people. Yeah. I almost always work for marketing because, you know, it's not packaging people that want a glass bottle. They want a glass bottle for a few cents. And the marketing place is where the money is. They get the budget. The packaging people are always screwed for the budget. Mm. And the people up higher, admin, they don't care. They just are concerned with the bottom line and what the yeah. divvy is for the shareholders. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the marketing people are amazing. And the, the makers themselves, the people that have invested themselves in their product are the people that I really like. Mm. No matter what it is, you know, they they have they they really really are excited about things, and that's what I like to do at the moment. I mean, and winemakers are fabulous, whiskey makers are amazing people. You know, yeah. we went to a whiskey tasting the other night, and the the whiskey maker, the distiller, is just full of his stuff. And I love that. On the other hand. You are uh, making an exhibition, you worry away in your studio, you work, 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 you invest all you can in it, you you know, think that these things that you're making that are so personal and so, uh, you know, intimate to yourself and then you, you send them off to a gallery and they do whatever they want with it. They put it on whatever sort of thing whatever light on it and then there's a whole bunch of people that come along for the opening for the uh, you know wine and nibbles and somebody might buy something might pay the gallery might pay you in 30 days and then you know that's the the for the artist for the maker you work towards the exhibition opening that's your thing a lot of uh, institutions like the traveling show so the artist works towards the show. You've invested all you can in right there and then, and then the institution takes it on and they scoop up what they can from it and ship it on to some other institution. It scoops mm. up what they can from it and ship it on 12 institutions. Later, you get your work back. It's old work, you know. And I don't like to sound ungrateful for those kinds of events that I've been in part of, but... It's nothing like doing a great commission where somebody comes to you and you, you get, they, we get really excited about it and then we come up with something that is really, really great and they pay you half before you do the job and half on delivery. 
Mm. That's real. That's a business there. What sort of methods do you use to communicate to the client that shows this is what I propose you're going to get so mm. that they're certain that they will get something they want? Oh, there's a process, you know, and everybody, you go through a different process with everybody, but everybody who comes to us wants something for a reason, you know, it might be a light over the dining table or it could be a brandy bottle or it could be whatever, you know, a glass or a type of decanter or whatever. And so the first process is getting out of them what they want, you know, getting the brief and the more specific the brief can be, the easier my job is. If they give me size, shape, colour, budget, everything, just in, in fine detail, then it's really easy for me You're to make. You're not innovating here, though, are you? No, but I could innovate within that. Mm. And mostly people come to me for my capabilities within that process. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people come, with, come to me with an actual finished picture of something they want that can't be made i've got examples of that all over but um then the problem the 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 process becomes one of innovation within the brief and budget the worst brief is oh i just want something you know i just want something give me a flight of money's no object yeah Yeah. you got nothing to make you can't you can't go anywhere with that Mm. and so the same process of drawing out of the people or person mm, mm, something that they really mm. would like do you do that in person do you do that on yeah, the phone yeah. oh no in person i'll go somewhere and then sketches backwards and forwards the processes the brief from you conversation all that kind of stuff sketches backwards and forwards a few ideas and then to take to and to develop those a little bit more maybe with a physical prototype or yep. colorways and stuff like that and then choosing one and then uh, developing that into a, an object. Do you charge for any of these? Yeah. 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 You've got to charge for it along the way, but it depends how bad you want the job, how much fun it looks, who yeah. the person is. Yeah, yeah. If it's, a, if it's going to be a hard job, then it costs a lot. <laughs> Sounds pretty normal. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of business people can talk to that. Yeah. It's the same as any small business, though, you know. If you yeah. if you go to anybody and you mm. want anything done, it's not mm. just an art. You're providing thing. a service. Mm. You're providing a service that is mm. offering skills that aren't found mm. very regularly. It's offering skills. I mean, I don't think that I've got anything that's unique. I don't think that I'm any more special than the guy that's doing my root canal filling. And I, I think there's a great big difference. Unless he's going to fill it with glass, he's probably doing it in gold or no, something. He's, he's, he's a craftsperson who's an innovator. And he looks at the job and takes the brief and there's a conversation and then you go back for another meeting and you, or you pay a certain amount of money for the first conversation. You look at the op- options together, you talk backwards and forwards and then you go mm. back for another meeting. There's some work done and you pay a certain amount. Some, there's some research, investigation and then there's a little bit of restoration mm. Mm. and you go back again and then there's the reparation work and all the that. The artist is a person that chooses to do that job mm. yeah i think you have to no, no you don't think no so way. so not well, in a small business you do what you can what's required when you have a business mm. the artist however let's say they are starting out or something like mm. that they, mm. they choose to do their art i think um from my perspective as a woodworker i could make kitchens 
or mm. I could make cabinets that have stories attached to them, mm. that have a high mm. level of my mm. personal soul in them. This is very different to somebody that just makes kitchens. I think that's a choice. But you, in that, you choose your market. Same as the guy who does the root canal filling. He's the endodontist. He's not the periodontist or the general <laughs> practitioner or the, uh, you know, the bands guy. He's chosen to go into endodontics. And so he's chosen a marketplace mm. and a process as well and all the stuff that it takes to fulfill the requirements of his craft or her craft. And that's the same as your example, the wood thing. And the same as my example. I mean, a lot of people don't do commissions in glass. It's too difficult for them. I think mainly it's too difficult because they don't like having the conversation negotiating the design. Most of the people that work in the glass arts or the glass crafts like to be self-driven and self-led and stuff like that. Mm. But that's a choice, like you say, and you choose your market and you either choose your market in making pumpkins or Christmas ornaments or then you go into paperweights maybe or then you go into domestic kitchenware, tableware, or you go into the art market and you go to galleries, whatever, you know, but at, uh, or public artwork. Mm. And each one of those areas has their problems and their issues and their... And their clients. Their clientele. And mm. so you choose a client. It's the same as gum tree painters, you know, or it's the same as painters, let's say. Painters can either be your abstract expressionism your impressionism your mm. gum tree painter your flower painter whatever so you choose a market by choosing what you're interested in probably or mm. what intrigues you most of all and you choose the size of the market therefore and then within that within the range of gum tree painters there's the gum tree painter that can charge a hundred thousand dollars and the yeah. gum tree painter marginally less skilled probably that can charge ten <laughs> Depends on the fashionability of gum tree painters too. At the time. I made quite a number of drawers, ah. five drawers, and I was pretty happy doing that. These were art. Oh, yeah. No, I'm going to say that. They had stories attached to them. Mm. The reason I made drawers as opposed mm. to, say, a wardrobe or mm. other things like a table mm. or a chair or a cabinet was because they sold. Mm. That's right. So in a sense, you, like for me, I was following the market mm. because they were the pieces that sold first mm. and they sold quickest and they made mm. money and I was super happy to mm. make them anyway. Yeah. And, and do, I think do you, you liked making drawers too, right? Totally. Yeah. I'd be totally happy making a table as well. I yeah, but drawers lay out a certain set of um, technical issues that are there for 100%. you to solve. 100% they And do. all those joins and all the yeah. material issues. And moving the parts. Sliding, moving parts, interrelationship, op- but I'm okay. options Look, for design. I don't think there's Handles. Much. Yeah, handles. Handles are the worst far out. No way. Yeah, you them. should have glass handles on it. It'd be amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 I agree. Knobs. Yeah. The bigger the knob, the better. What would your top three pieces of wisdom be? Having run a business. That's the wrong guy. No, man, you're you're the right guy. I think we've sort of touched on them, but like maybe you can distill it. Like somebody in a creative pursuit, they're just about to get out on their own. No, let's say, let's say they're thinking about even going to study perhaps. Would you bother getting a tertiary education? Would you just go and intern somewhere? I can't stand the uh, way tertiary education's gone. I, I love the idea of tech schools and 
tech schools that start at year seven or eight. I like the German system where you can study glass in the school in Kromsak and you do your high school in a glass school and you study all sorts of glass as well as maths and spelling. And I like the idea that the German idea where there's the handwerks come the handwerks come which is the organization the german organization that looks after craft mm. and they give qualifications they've for, got about a hundred different crafts i think yeah. crafts council here in australia layers, like everything yeah everything uh, from building swiss chalets the handwerks come the handwerks messer is the huge show that shows in munich all about handworks, and handworks is craft, and hand and it involves encompasses everything. I love that that craft and handwork and identification of people's skills and the the way that people feel about themselves as a community, as a culture, is about handwork, not about you know how much money you've got. But uh, whatever you're going into, I think that um, the Mount family motto rings true. And is a solid place to start. What's the Mount Family motto? <laughs> <laughs> Mount Family motto is aim low and win. And I think that, you know, people hear that wrong all the time and yeah. people think that it's really funny and people think that it's, you know, quirky and just wrong because it flies in the face of that common knowledge that if you draw the bow and aim towards the top of the mountain... And, and give it all you've got and let the arrow go doing towards the top of the mountain that at least you'll get halfway up. You know, if you don't get anywhere, if you don't hit the top of the mountain, at least you'll get halfway up and you'll be somewhere. But that, I think, is totally wrong thinking. If you take the arrow and draw the bow as hard as you can and let it go towards the top of the mountain, it's going to land somewhere and you'll never find that arrow again. It's lost halfway up the mountain. You'll walk around for weeks trying to find the damn arrow and it'll be gone. But if you just draw back a little bit and you aim 100 yards ahead, you'll be able to to find the arrow and have another crack and then find the arrow and have another crack and go again and go again and you'll reach Mm. the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. The way I'm hearing that is like don't not try for that top of the mountain. No. But do it in small increments. So small increments. Get, Take a little mouthful. Chew it as well as you can. Take every bit of flavour out of it and swallow it without choking and without anybody telling you how, you know, how... And there's no time limit on that. No. It's and, like I can see the outcome. Yeah. You achieve the outcome. And you can go and go and go and you just... you uh, The logo for the Mount Family Motto is a small three-legged... <laughs> wire-haired Australian terrier jumping through a flaming hoop that's still on the ground. <laughs> Is it? Have yeah. you drawn this? Does it exist? I have had people draw it in different you know, times that I've been yeah, there, right. different places in the world. The Japanese ones are great. Tom Moore did an excellent oh, version. Oh, would have done a fantastic oh, yeah, one. Yeah. But, yeah, to, without... Um, it's getting disappointment. Disappointment, I think, is the great, is the enormous crippler in our culture. And, uh, you know, people that haven't got jobs, haven't got hand skills, haven't got a place to stand or a place to sit, don't understand themselves through their material, have got nowhere to go. They're, they're generationally unemployed. 
and unemployable people that are sad and haven't been told to aim low and win, you know, that were, have, have only seen the winners. And like our sports people, for instance, they get there through starting when they're extremely young and running as hard as they can and just involving themselves in some sort of an activity and building up slowly a physique that matches the requirements of the sport, an understanding of the game, an understanding of their team, an understanding of their materials, the skills, reactions and physiological part of their their sport comes to them when they're very young and taking those tiny little footsteps and gradually building up to be being somebody great and the total champions of our culture, as are the musicians. You're not going to learn to play a musical instrument overnight. It's going to be a long period of mm. practice. Or even if you start late, like 25, I think it's too late. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of um, a material... Not music, I think you're probably right, because the way the mm. brain forms, mm. it needs to be forming with music as it's part of its mm. structure, because by the time you get 25, your brain's it's not solid, yeah. but it's... Still flexible enough. Flexible enough, mm. yeah. And the other, another um, gem of wisdom I'm going to hand over here is um, a book that I really have enjoyed reading and understanding. It's called The Hand, How it, Its Use Shapes the Brain, Language and Human Culture by Frank Wilson. It's an amazing book and it... When was it published? ...describes all those things that um, we were talking about just then. I don't know when it was published, but quite a while ago. Yeah, it talks about the development of our brain relative to our hand, not mm. vice versa. Mm. And why we've got an opposing thumb mm. and right up to modern technologies how this idea of making things seems intrinsic to your philosophy how do you reconcile somebody that's going to a cubicle and they're selling insurance or they're just solving people's questions in a telecommunications company <laughs> You're holding your yeah. head in your hands at the moment. But these people yeah. exist and, like, uh, most people are doing those sorts of jobs. I don't know. And I think that it's so sad. I don't... I can't understand. And our, I I think our culture's based on, you know, the millions of people that do that kind of stuff. And I, I want to sort of tease this out because, like, you just look that book up on your mobile phone. Mm. People in China are making those mobile mm. phones. Okay, they're not mm. designing. Somebody is putting some part mm. again and again and again mm. and again. They've probably got a really short time limit mm. and they've been doing it for days. They're mm. going to do it in, for days in advance. Yeah, for their lifetime, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and yet here we are, we're using these mm. objects. So mm. do we say, no, we, we don't have those objects because, or do you... No, I think, see, I think that uh, the person that's doing the craft in China of putting the phones together is far better off than the person that's unemployed here doing nothing. I think that any kind of craft has equal value. Most people are employed, though, and they're working in jobs they don't enjoy. And perhaps they don't enjoy putting the telephone together, the people in China putting, crafting the telephone, but I still think it's better than doing nothing. 
And I think the fact that we don't do it here in Australia is awful. Mm. I think that we don't make our cars. I think that's terrible. I think it's one of the worst things in my lifetime. I think that we we have exchanged that for making a submarine, which I think is is ridiculous. Why do we want a submarine? Why are they putting billions of dollars into making a submarine? I think that's just the most stupid thing. Why do we want to manufacture for war when we could be putting that same amount of money into making cars and being innovative in making cars, having hand skills developed and uh, innovation developed here in Australia for you know something we can use here in Australia? I think if there's a war where there's a submarine required, I think we've lost already. I just don't think that it's a good idea for us, for anybody to be making submarines. I think it would be great if if we made telephones here and there's a whole bunch of people involved in activities requiring hand skills that perhaps they didn't like all that much, but is better than being unemployed, totally unemployed and unemployable. I think our education system might be better directed towards craft activities. I heard a talk um, that Jordan Peterson, have you ever heard Jordan Peterson? He advocated that people should try to be entrepreneurs. So make a little business. I would say to my kids, um, you're likely to have jobs and you're also likely to have a business probably running at the same time or in series. Start a business. Yeah, I think that small business is not the easiest thing to do in our culture. I think that there are things stacked up against it. All of our families, only one person in our family has got a job. The rest of us are small business people. We're there, uh, chippies and gardeners and stonemasons, all sorts of people in our extended family and uh, in all different sectors of it as well. And everybody has trouble running their small business because of all the rules and mandatories and occupational health and safety and all the rest of it. And it's a really, really big job to run a small business and to expand mm. that. It's so much easier to have a job for somebody who's dealing with all those issues. I would still say have a small business. Look after, Try to look after yourself. Try to carefully be innovative within your skill set to allow yourself the autonomy of having a small business. Not that you'll get any further, but I think that the overall satisfaction of it would probably be mm. better. But then, you know, if you work in a team that has is filled with hand skills, it's filled, it's motivated by somebody that has that covers a lot of those issues. That's a nice working environment. Like our daughter has got a job. She's the only one that's got a job. She works with a team. She's an integral part of the team. She's in a supportive work environment. She gets satisfaction out of that out of her craft within that team. I think that's a great thing and much easier than having your own business. I think our government could make it easier for small business people. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure too. Yeah. They make it pretty easy for corporations, I think. And I think that um, to be more orientated towards supporting our culture and our immediate community is something that our government could do better. I'm constantly uh, surprised by what our government chooses to spend its money on. I think a lot of people are. Mm. What about the physicality of your craft, making things with your hands? Have you got all your ten fingers? <laughs> I've got the two most important yeah, ones. Yeah, got the birds. <laughs> That's the way. But as I get older, you know, ten years ago I started cracking up. I was 57. There was things that I felt like I couldn't do any longer and I was 
was getting disappointed with the way my body was going. So I had to start very thinking very clearly about how to deal with that. And so I've done certain things that have uh, drawn my physical lifespan out a little bit further, I'm pretty sure, as far as exercise and, you know, looking after myself. And I see people, young people, all the time having trouble with their joints and muscles and joining tissues and all that kind of stuff and not understanding it. And I just wish that I had uh, started when I was younger to be aware of um, what is going to happen, you know, and that sounds like an old man talking, and I apologise for that, but I wish that I, instead of starting at 57, I wish that I had started at 37. Yeah, or even earlier. Yeah. Just as part of the, what you do. Yeah. It's not just the practice of your glass work mm. or your woodworking, in my mm. case. It's actually keeping mm. your body mobile. Yeah, yeah. Making it, making it feel mm. good, because by the time you get to 40, mm. it yeah. starts deteriorating. Mm. You can't do a whole lot of it. No. It starts hurting a lot. Yeah, I've got arthritis coming on my thumbs and fingers, yeah. and I work. I have to work on that a lot. To, to keep on going but it's part of that holistic thing that I was talking about before mm. you know which part of your business mm. is most important mm. is it playing golf mm. or riding a bike or going to the gym or going to yoga or blowing glass or mm. doing the sales or grinding the glass or talking to the client or what part is All most important being really clear right from mm. the start of the conversation mm. you know there's there's the whole lot mm. and you can't yeah. do it with if you ignore one bit just one bit if you ignore it if you ignore speaking to your children or looking after your you know taking your car for a service if you ignore anything mm. then it falls apart and it just mm. becomes much more difficult yeah mm. look I concur because mm. I know mm. <laughs> I've done that it didn't work for me <laughs> when you walk into the workshop what brings you the most joy or your studio mm. Oh, it depends on the day, really. There's no hierarchy. I think from time to time, when I'm sitting at the bench and really achieving something in the glass, I have the luxury of feeling good about myself and my skills. And I think that is a special sort of thing. And being able to transfer an idea into something three-dimensional at the bench is something that gives me a lot of... Um, we're talking about the glass bowing bench, aren't we? Yeah, we're the not glass talking about bench. like a table in your studio. We're talking about mm. at the glory hole. Yeah, at the bench, that's called. <laughs> but it is, it's a special feeling because I've, I feel like I've been able to establish a special relationship with the material and I can feel it. I'm as close as anybody can be to feeling mm. the material and to mm. being able to take a little journey with it. Um, and sometimes you struggle, sometimes you uh, have difficulty getting it all to go right. And there's a million variables, but when it's going smoothly, it feels so good. But quite often, you know, if I'm spending hours putting marks on paper or, or in the cold working shear, grinding, or if I've got a special job on, like, you know, I've got some special jobs at the moment, just achieving that is pretty good. I find um, when I'm at the bench and you look at the clock and all of a sudden a couple of mm. hours has gone by, that's mm. joy. Mm. Yeah. The relationship with the material, I think, is pretty important for me. Clearly. Mm. Same with me. Mm. Really, really important. Mm. How important is the decorative aspect 
on functional objects. Well, could say how important is beauty? Mm. It depends on what I'm aiming at on the day. You know, I like to work the traditional techniques, Italian glass blowing techniques. I like to think that I can be innovative within those techniques. Are there techniques from America or Britain? No. So there's only no. Italian techniques. <laughs> 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 As far as I'm concerned, you know, there are, you know, there's a lot of, there's millions, but I like the Italian ones. That's all I'm going to talk about. <laughs> They've all got names like Inciso, Encalmo, Batuto, Scruffito, yeah. all those names. Yeah. But sometimes I feel like I can be innovative within those processes and those are basically techniques for decorative elements in the glass. I like I like uh, to refer to movements in the in the more general arts, you know, like minimalism, those kinds of things. Why is that? Is that because they're currently fashionable or popular? Or? No, because it's the feeling of the material. It lends itself really well to uh, taking on a certain soul through its surface and colour and translucency, transparency, its form, the way that you're able to manipulate the form, the fluidity of it and all that kind of stuff. It lends itself to those kind of minimal things. But also Art Nouveau. I really love Art Nouveau. Mm. I love Art Deco Mm. in a way. Mm. I I wouldn't call myself and I don't want to make... Uh, deco things but I think that those kinds of philosophies in the production of objects are, uh, are a good um, and leader. Uh, to less extent Art Deco are highly mm. decorative. Mm. But yeah, decorative in, in a way that refers to nature let's say. Mm. You know? Art was. Mm. I like that. Sometimes I make things that refer to objects, natural objects. I don't know how me that is but anyway, it's part of it part of what I do it's just something Mm. maybe they sell part of the practice do you have a design philosophy a definition of a good design or a bad design nope I definitely don't there are things that I like and things I don't like and it's all extremely personal and I think that the next person has just as much right to say that as me can you articulate things you like like if you see something you like can you articulate why you like it if you see something you don't like can you articulate that sometimes Sometimes I can. People say, the first crit that I ever had written about me, it was in a Melbourne newspaper, and said, Nick Mount is a flawless colourist with an intuitive feeling for form and function. I'm I'm still hanging on to that. (laughs) (laughs) Still hanging on to it. But people that go on about colours going with other colours or sitting well with other colours or, you know, working with other colours, I think that's total bullshit. I don't just don't believe it, you know. The colours you find that please you are, you know, particularly personal. And some, well, for different reasons for different people. It's no rules. Unless you've got a rule, then that's the only rule. Rule one, no rules. Yeah. Rule two, <laughs> refer to rule one. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Do you read magazines and, like, follow what's trend? I'm not saying in your work... That, you, that they might influence you, but do you keep abreast of what's going on? No. What about the broader art community as well? Broader art? No, probably not as much as I should, but that's, that's the part of the academic side of me, non-existent. <laughs> See, I think the academic part of you might be non-existent, but the intellectual part of you is very existent, and it, 
plays a part within your whole sort of practice? I think that there's, well, a, a winemaker um, described his craft to me one time. He said that he was, he loved his craft of winemaking. And there are three components as the uh, raw material and the integrity of the raw material. And that is super important, you know. And in his case, he was talking about the grape, the style of grape, the terroir, the, the climate and all that kind of stuff not fiddling with that as a raw material is super important to him. And then there's the process. And so if you're making a Shiraz, you're making a Shiraz. And those kind of processes are set down in history. They are a thing that um, he felt was really super important to adhere to and to follow on because of its history, because of the traditions of it, and because it could feel connected to it. And then the third part, third part of a craft is the maker who if they're lucky enough and if they're there and if they're concentrating hard enough and they're investing enough of themselves in the first two components can add a little salt and pepper that will make it their own that will get individualize it to a certain extent and so you know whatever you are if you can add that to your raw material and your process, then you can make a craft that's your own. And in involving myself in the things that I do, you know, I have travelled a lot, I've been to different workshops all over the world, exhibitions all over the world and stuff, I can bring back to my studio a load of swag, a bag full of stuff from everywhere else in the world that I go and work and I can unpack it in the studio and pick up bits and pieces of it and feel that as an individual, as a maker, I can add something to my materials and process. And so I don't read magazines. Those are, pe- those are things that are put together by people who are not me. Personal experience that I have, mm-hmm. I have the opportunity to invest. Yeah, it's those personal interactions that you've been talking about again right mm. through this conversation. It's um, mm. more important than getting something vicariously from another source. Do clients have shortcomings? <laughs> no, none of them. <laughs> I you know, that's some jobs that I work on will go out for a year, you know, and there'll be all sorts of different people involved and materials other materials other components some engineering some you know whatever goes on into them and uh, the process can sometimes become tiresome but each person that invests along with me i think has you know that equal value to the object in the end some are really frustrating really really frustrating but um the glass is really frustrating. The process is frustrating. I'm I'm more frustrating than they are. It's all, you know, lumped in. And I wouldn't even know what you meant by, um, you know, what particular thing that a client might bring to the process that would be more annoying than anything else. How important is going overseas, do you think? It has been really important. I don't like it anymore, the travel on the jet. And all the bullshit you have to put up with, you know, the the line at the security thing. and You're not allowed to take guns anymore. The trauma of it all. You can't you take know. knives either. And the connections, the, the connection, the internal connections along the way. I think, oh, God. And I used to uh, think that you have to, to be able to do it properly, you have to be able to change yourself into a lower form of life before you leave home. 
get in the cab, all of a sudden, you know, you've handed yourself over to the taxi driver, to the person at the desk at the airport, mm. to the pilot. To the... So the physical travelling's a bit of a chore, oh, yeah. but the travel experience from the perspective of, like, uh, improvement, like, clearly it's been a big part of oh, your yeah. personal Huge. development. The places that you see, the cultures that you get to immerse yourself in, the weirdness that happens all the time, you know, the weirdest place is Japan. We're going to Japan next month and we'll be away a month, but the, you've got to know that almost all of the time in Japan you don't know what's going on. And it's, you know, you do hand yourself over to that culture. The first time we went to America, one of the first experiences we had was trying to buy a teapot. And we were in Berkeley in California. We had a little flat there and we walked up and down University Avenue going into the shops and asking for a teapot and people could not understand what we said and ordering a Coca-Cola in a bar you know it was impossible in those days because it was before Crocodile Dundee and it was trying to get understood with your accent the simplest thing teapot pot for brewing tea you know it's really really difficult and I kept on doing that instead of saying I'm looking for a tea part. I would be more and more English and get less and less understood. Mm. But that kind of thing stays with if you ever and, and you wonder and you you know it's part of the building block, trying to uh, you know get understood or make your way in a different culture. I still like it. Just the travel, the getting there, the journey. Mm. which is so important. That's why we need hoverboards or tele- teleportation devices. I reckon if, the, if, if, you got, if you went into the Qantas building in town, or yeah, the, let's say the Qantas building in town, if there was a Qantas building in town, and you could go into the Qantas building in town, you could hand over your ticket, you could have a little injection, they could put you in a tube. <laughs> talk, about, talk about just giving yourself over to yeah. the experience. They could put you in a tube. And you would be out cold with a controlled atmosphere in this tube in the plane. The plane would take off. Wouldn't matter how long I it think took. You just need to take to some diazepam or something like that. Just, <laughs> just get somebody to look after you. On the no, line. completely computer. You know, atmosphere controlled, so you wouldn't get a DVT. No, you wouldn't have to get up and sit down and go to the loo. You wouldn't have no. to step over the There's people no next to you. There's no, no eating. Yeah, no, it's just just that. And then you'd wake up in Budapest downtown in the Qantas building without, yeah, mm. yeah. What do you think? They'd give you another little injection and boom, you'd be there. What could go wrong? They wouldn't Absolutely need flight attendants. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be. They'd take you off the plane with a forklift, yeah, you know, in packs God of damn. a dozen. Absolutely. Yeah. What if you didn't end up in Budapest? What if you ended up in. What can happen to your luggage anyway? Helsinki. This is it, isn't it? Yeah. Adelaide's a pretty small city. Mm. Do you think the place where you live and work has an influence on the sorts of uh, things you yes. do and your capacity to make uh, an impact? Yeah. Not your capacity to make an impact, probably, well, yeah, although it does. But I think that, you know, wherever you are, you have to be well-known somewhere else to be recognised where you are. I think that's pretty well true. Mm. But uh, living and working in Adelaide has been really great for us. When we shifted from Gippsland, we looked at Sydney and we looked at Melbourne and we looked at Adelaide uh, for possible places to go. And uh, now, with the benefit of hindsight, 
I can see how our practice would have been totally different had we moved anywhere else. Mm. We could have gone to America. We could have been in Seattle. It would have been totally different. Our family would have been different. Our garden would have been different. Our studio would have been different. Everything would have been different. Not that I'm complaining or saying that one would have been better than another. It just would have been different. Now, I'm sure that we've had a pretty good trot here. There's things that we haven't done that we could have done Maybe if we'd have moved to Sydney, our real estate would have been totally different in value if we'd have moved to Sydney or Melbourne. Especially if you'd moved in the early 80s or something, you could have actually done it. 83, we shifted to here. You could have done it in Melbourne and Sydney. And Sydney, yeah. No. But no, you wouldn't want to either. Imagine living in Melbourne. Oh, my I grew up God. in Melbourne. Oh, God, it'd be Melbourne terrible. Nobody's not living there. But you haven't <laughs> lived there recently. No. Oh, God. Yeah. This is true. Mm. I wouldn't mind living in Gippsland, though. That's pretty nice I wouldn't place. mind living in Gippsland, but Pauline grew up in Gippsland, and she doesn't she? want to move back there. Fair enough. It's... it's. Uh, I think, look, even Gippsland has changed depressed, a yeah. lot. Mm. Like the Traugan, for instance, mm. is a big city mm. now. It wasn't back in the day. And we're having our big exhibition at the end of... Oh, in November, mm-hmm. in Sale. Yep. At the Sale Art Gallery. And the Sale Gallery is a beauty. It's big, well-appointed. It's got great spaces, and they've invested a lot in it. I, I don't... Well, Pauline doesn't want to live in Gippsland. Fair enough. I like the environment. The scenery and the lushness of it, mm. the wetness, the dampness mm. of it. Yeah, me too. Mm. Yeah, there's grass that's green all year round there. Mm. Not in South Australia. No. Rains for nine months of the year and drips off the tree to the other tree. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Someone said to me once that all artists have some form of mental illness <laughs> and that it tends to be part of a creative life. And I'm just wondering how mad you think you are. No, I'm the only normal one. No. Hmm. Oh, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a small business person and our small business is in the arts. I live in Adelaide in the leafy tree-lined eastern suburbs. I've got a stable relationship with our family. I feel good about that. Mm. I feel normal as. And, you know, that's not being critical either way. And I feel really happy for that. You know, we've got dramas all the time, this and that, we've got jobs on, it's feast or famine. And I don't think that I'm any different to any other small business person. We're never going to be rich at all, ever, uh, but uh, neither most of the people. No, that person in the cubicle doing the job, mm. feeling shitty, they'll be getting by too. Mm. I'm pretty convinced that a studio practice like this one is only possible if you've got a partner supporting you in it. Do you agree? I think partners are extremely important. Not necessarily traditional life partners or marriage type partners, but Pauline and I, we got married in our last year at art school when Whitlam was in power and we got the married person student allowance. Did you get married to get that? Yeah. And Pauline was keen to leave home where she lived with her mum. I was living on $50 a week that my dad gave me. And so then we got the married person student allowance and we were able to move into a house and buy a car and we lived pretty well on that. And our uh, expectations in getting married were achieved right there and then. We didn't have a long-term goal. 
what we what we wanted to be. It wasn't the biggest day of our lives. It wasn't, you know, a traditionally the expectations of a marriage would meet the person of your dreams and to live with them happily ever after. We had low expectations and they were achieved straight away. And we're still sort of in this trial relationship, you know, because we didn't invest much importance in marriage, the institution, but we did it for various reasons. So, uh, and my family, my dad particularly, when I said Pauline and I are going to get married, he was just over the moon. He thought it was great. It was positive. And I thought to myself, wow, maybe there is something in it. And anyway, his positivity rubbed off. But um, our life has, we established our business partnership and our family partnership and our kids grew up in the studio and we worked together, made decisions together, moved on various ways and never really having uh, another experience makes you wonder from time to time, you know, whether you made the right decisions or not along the way but the goals are non-specific and good on the day but the partnership in business I think is extremely important you know I mean I don't do maths or spelling and the spell checker on the computers not too good <laughs> but then the mobile phone's better have mobile you noticed better? no try not to notice <laughs> but I'm probably better at writing a letter than Pauline is, but she is much better at doing the regular day-to-day. And we pack and ship together, and we've got, you know, awareness of each other's needs and all. Does she come and and criticise your designs at all? We talk about design, and we work on design, and I, you know, we throw things at each other, and always, you know, when I'm talking about clients and projects and stuff I'm talking with Pauline mm. and so it's always mm. we're always involved in the same drive for mm. making it all mm. work and the outcomes are perceived to be the same the, the, the expected outcomes are the same for both of you you're both working towards a common goal yeah yeah we, uh, our expectation is that we pay this month's bills and that we work slowly towards paying off the mortgage mm. Mm. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I don't think that, uh, you know, as I've been saying all along, it's the team that counts, you know. Mm. And like Hugo was on the phone before and that was my mm. sister was on the phone just then. Mm. And, mm. you know, it's a, um, I feel good about the way that we all work together, concerned about. Maybe because you live in Adelaide and your whole family here, extended family, mm. I think they are, they? I've got one brother that lives in Tassie. It's it's about the family, but it's about friends and it's about... Well, if uh, I can cycle into the jam factory in a few minutes and I've got, you know, people that I can work with on all different levels, Mm. all over the place, you know, and none of them are far away except those that live down at Port Adelaide. Why would you live down there? Yeah, really. (laughs) There's mm. nobody I know that would know. <laughs> what are the new challenges coming up? Uh, well, always there's the um, possibility of having nothing to do next year. Like now, next year, we've got our year pretty well planned out. But a few months ago, 
we didn't. Uh, do you work? Do you, do you sort of identify that and then you go and attack that issue mm, and no, get at it? Or no, it happens along the way, and that's part of what Pauline brings to the business is her faith that something will happen, her faith that it's going to be okay, that it'll move on. Is she a teacher? No, she, well, she did train as a teacher, tech teacher. <laughs> Yeah, but no, she has this faith that things are going to work out and every now and then I worry, you know, about what's, what's going to happen. She has this kind of faith and it always has turned out. You know, because, for instance, next year we've been invited to the, go to the Glass Art Society Conference, American Glass Art Society Conference in Sweden and we're going to be meeting some of our mates and we're going to be doing some stuff in Europe for a while. And I've got jobs on now that are not due till August next year. You know, so it's a pretty it's all, good timeline. Yeah, it's moving on, and we'll be busy, and that's what's coming up next. You know, and the challenges are having faith in that that that's going to happen. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's one of my challenges. But then always there's we've got a new grandchild due <laughs> in five weeks. Our kids are starting. Our grandchildren are starting different schools. Our children have got new jobs on here and there, all over the place. You know, it's all part of it. There'll be a new uh, head of the glass studio at the Jam Factory. That'll be you. No way. <laughs> I had a job once, remember? <laughs> yeah, I'm a terrible employee, I'm pretty sure. Maybe I should go and ask to do it. Oh, I think you should. Yeah, I know yeah. all about glass. You do, it doesn't matter. Everything about glass. It doesn't matter. There's plenty of people there that know about glass. <laughs> do you have a superpower outside of glass? Uh, Mr. Cuddleman is my name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wolfie, one of our grandsons, is really into superheroes, and so I'm Mr. Cuddleman. That's my superpower. Oh, that's I can defeat awesome. any of his superpowers. What are his superpowers? With a cuddle. Depends on the day. Yeah. Sometimes. So he's got heaps of superpowers. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's but cool. I can defeat them all. <laughs> with a cuddle. Yeah. <laughs> that's so when the apocalypse comes, are you going to have any useful skills? Oh, yeah, gardening. We're going to be totally self-sufficient with the back paddock there, veggies, fruits. We've got over 30 fruit trees. We've got veggie boats happening. Our asparagus is really good at the have moment. Have you got a bunker? Bunker? What are we going to need a bunker for? Well, when the apocalypse, you need a sort of a little place to bunker down. Well, be we, safe. Until... Well, we have got a cellar in the house, yeah, because yeah. the house is original 1880s and it, it's got a produce cellar in it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, got it all worked out. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. Yeah. How useful is art and craft to our society? It's central for the, for the reasons that I've been talking about, you know, that hand skills and, uh, and materials is how we get to know ourselves. If we don't know ourselves and we haven't got politics, don't know where to sit, I think it's central. We can't even have a conversation. If we don't know who we are, we can't have a conversation. And you see plenty of those people on the bus. And I think having a conversation is, you know, what makes our culture evolve and uh, remain as stable as it can. Mm. I doubt, you know, those people without a craft or ability to know themselves through their hands. Let's take a few examples. I wonder what... Oh, no, Donald Trump's got golf. 
I wonder what ScoMo does. Religion. That's one of the dark crafts. One of the three dark crafts. Yeah. Yeah, I read somewhere when he just became Prime Minister that um, his hobby was, was his mm. church. Mm. And Pauline heard on the radio that uh, there's a Pentecostal group of Pentecostal church people going through the northwest of Australia at the moment, encouraging the Indigenous people to burn their... Tribal yeah, artefacts. Tribal artefacts. That'll go down pretty well. Yeah. There's so much madness. sadness in the world. Yeah, madness. Mm. What's the best decision you ever made? I never made one. <laughs> you try not to make decisions or you just don't make good ones? No, <laughs> never made a decision. Well, that's fucked up my next question, which is <laughs> what is the hardest decision you've ever made? Yes. I think the logic of things presents itself from time to time. I wish that I could make decisions. And I'm not bad at making decisions. I'm not a procrastinator or anything like that. But, you know, I can't remember a time when I've made a decision. I don't shop, for instance. I never buy anything that would require making a decision. Have you ever bought a plumb bob or...? Very rarely. Like, they just come to me. I've got hundreds of them over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what I really mean, you know. Like 15 or 20 bucks, that's not buying something. Mm. So you don't buy a car, so Pauline, she'll do that. It's a motivator. She does She's it. the motivator. Have you ever been in a really bad headspace, and how did you get yourself oh, yeah. out of it? Yes. I, you know, from time to time, I think we all go through there, and um, to different degrees, different levels. But um, one time when we were at art school in Gippsland, Robin Wallace Crabb was our lecturer, one of our main lecturers there, and one of the... The only thing really that we had to do while we were at uni over there was to talk to one of our lecturers once a week. That was the thing. And we had to be proactive in um, developing a, uh, an innovative multicultural arts practice for ourselves. That was what the school was about. So one day we were all standing around, there was a group of us standing around downstairs in one of the machinery workshops and we weren't doing anything again we weren't doing anything on that day i can imagine giving yeah and robin came down and said and yelled at us all for fuck's sake do something make something and so that um and i I spoke to him about it later on he said that's the way that you move forward is by making something Mm. And I believe that that's truly the case for me is that if you come to an impasse or if you're feeling down or bad or if you're feeling whatever, then you've got to make something. And that's Pauline's advice for everybody. People ask us all the time, how do you become a successful craftsperson? And Pauline says, well, first you have to make something. And that is actually true. You know, in making something, you involve yourself with the material in a process your hands get busy, you start thinking, you start working, no matter what it is you're making, you're running, you know, a log through a saw or whatever, making planks or whatever, that ability to, uh, or that opportunity, that privilege to be able to immerse yourself in the process and the material offers you the opportunity to uh, think and to get out of your own, you know, whatever's going wrong or whatever's happening to get there and to move on and then through that thing process you'll and making something then magically you'll have something to sell 
and then in selling something if you sell it for and if you take as one of the main determining factors in the selling of something the uh, price offers enough in return to afford you the opportunity to make something new then you can make something new and that the cycle starts and through making something you gain a reputation you gain skills gain a living the cycle starts a lot of people you know graduate from art school and think what what am i going to do now Ooh, make something <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the way you that's the way i've always been able to uh, draw myself out of a bad using your hands and yeah making things yeah. being busy mm. yeah yeah so you don't actually kind of think yourself through some of the issues and Ooh, that, the, the way, you know, you either, well, I do yoga and meditation and stuff like that, but that's so that I can make something. I don't think that anything happens if you're not making something. You're making a family, you're making, you know, a piece of glass, you're mm. making a garden, you're making whatever, you're making something, you know, you're being productive. Mm. And that is what offers you the opportunity to think your way out of something or think your way into something or get your mind working. If you could go back and give advice to a young Nick, what would it be? Mm. And do you think you'd listen? No, I wouldn't listen. (laughs) At the moment, I think that I would tell myself to take up yoga early Mm. and for physical things Mm. and then to make more. People worry about making stuff because it just adds to the uh, volume of junk that exists in the world. But I think junk is good. Junk is good. With it, needn't be, it needs to be out of proper stuff, you know. It doesn't want to be out of plastic bags. I but. think the word junk here is just completely oxymoronic because, like, what you're making, what you're mm. doing is not junk. What you're making is things that are going to be handed down into generations they're going to be held up as like the objects of our culture in the future. Maybe, or not may- yours specifically, ours uh, collectively. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what the uh, anthropologists will dig up and have a look and assess what we're thinking. I mean, you have a look at any syllabus that mm, in a university that's got an art no school. Thanks. Yeah. Don't do it. But mm. just, I guarantee mm. you. It'll mm. be the artworks mm. that are in every other photograph. They'll have mm. photographs of a, um, mm. a lovely lawn, sunshine, mm. people enjoying that lawn. Mm. The next one will be artworks. Mm. Well, how do we think about who the Romans were, who the who anybody was, who the Egyptians were? It's all through artworks. It's through the the writings, the calligraphy, the images, the statuary, the buildings, the roads, whatever's built we leave behind and uh that's how we're judged it's how we judge right now and you know you look at the chinese and they are amazing because they make the best glass there's absolutely the best glass possible the uh the germans make the best cars you know how do we think about cultures like the best guitars who how do we assess the value of a culture it's through what they make you know and and that's what the culture leaves behind. That's how we we'll, we will be judged through objects. But definitely, a lot of it with junk. That's how craft becomes art. 
is by giving it uh, the benefit of the passing of time. The best things will always rise to the surface and will be kept. Mm. What advice would you give to somebody who's just about to start a creative business? Go hard. Start making. Start making. Go hard. I mean to say... The creative businesses that you can picture people starting would be web design, game design, all sorts of stuff, but I don't know about that stuff because I'm an old guy. But if people are going to be, uh, you know, involving themselves in glass or furniture or wood or whatever, the metal, I would say go hard. Don't hold back. Don't be worried about it. Don't be complacent or overly concerned make something do the work mm. if you could retire tomorrow what would be the top three things you'd do with your time <laughs> well I think it's proven statistically proven that the the most common side effect of retirement is early dying <laughs> it's true <laughs> It's like the most common... Apart from that, but that's not, that's not an ambition for retirement, I'm just... It's the same as the most common side effect of contracting cancer in America is bankruptcy. But early dying is what you get if you retire. And I not that I will ever be able to because, we're, you know, we haven't got any super or anything. Yeah. But no, I just make stuff. Keep making, isn't there retirement? <laughs> yeah, I always thought of that myself as well. In fact, even things like holidays were kind of mm. like, mm, don't really mm. get that. Don't understand the concept of no. the notion of stopping mm. and doing another thing mm. that wasn't what I wanted to be doing right now, which is to yeah. build stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think the holidays are destructive. It's downtime. <laughs> And it's it's a funny thing about our culture, you know, is that uh, when I was at school, they said the constant thing they were talking about was modern technology and how it was going to mm. allow us the opportunity to have more holidays and, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. more people work relaxation time. Then, yeah, you may not have heard about the basic recreation time, the basic living income. Mm -hmm. basic living wage or something like that it's not so much talked about here but in the states it is like you know the new technologies are going to wipe out whole whole sort of workforce and mm. the concern is that these people won't have their identity mm. they won't have work they mm. won't have money so what do we do we give them a basic living wage mm. basic oh yeah yeah basic living wage I've heard about something that something like that I'm mm. not ever wrong you would say get making yeah absolutely absolutely the people that you um People constantly talk about blokes in their sheds as if it's a joke, you know, a cultural bit of a this and that. But what do people do? Oh, a classic example of it is um, the glass blowers in the factories used to have time to make their own work. And it was a privilege. And they'd do it at lunchtime or after work hours. And they were, it was called, they were made friggers because it was called friggin'. And that's true. And they would make things that would demonstrate a high level of skill that would brag yeah. to people that would have mythological powers or mystical powers or be good for gifts or that they would be brags, you know. So the glassblowers would uh, spend their own free time in their craft making stuff to demonstrate how good they were. And that's, you know, people that um, play sport on the weekends, after, after work, after school that have their sheds, that do up cars, that do turning wood in their sheds and all that kind of stuff. That's work 
for people. You know, some people spend their lifetimes working on cars. Other people work in, a, in the city and then come home and work on their cars as a privilege, as a luxury. They invest money in it. Mm. Hot rod artists, all sorts of people that, that uh, don't have the privilege in their regular working hours come home and work hard. They make things to demonstrate their level of skill, to understand the material, to involve themselves and immerse themselves in a process. Mm. So they've got, they can say about themselves, you know, they play hockey for a certain team or they make stuff or they involve themselves in a craft. They have hobby farms. You know, people have stuff that they do on the weekend in their gardens. Gardening is an amazing craft. It's a fabulous craft. And people invest an enormous amount of money and time and effort and energy in their garden crafts, building stuff, making stuff, allowing themselves the opportunity to invest in crafts. Getting their hands dirty. Yeah. And that, Being mindful too. And, and that's what people retire for, is to, uh, is to have time to invest in their crafts. Well, it doesn't really work that way. It's totally upside down. By the time you get to retire, you're buggered and you haven't learned the skill. You haven't got those sort of hand skills. Cut your finger off in the plane. <laughs> Burn yourself on the glass. Burn yourself badly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're the lucky ones that are able to uh, spend our lives, you know, immersing ourselves in our materials by far. But I do love the, uh, you know, the weekend warriors that just, without even acknowledging or, you know, going anywhere near analysing what it is they do, they just invest in craft and call it something else. Could mm. be a hobby. It's definitely what I do is a hobby. It's, yeah. not, it's not a factory. I wish it was, though. I was speaking to one of the guys who's a designer for the submarines. <laughs> I was at a party and um, I said, Really? You design the submarines? What do you do? And he said, He's in charge of making sure it doesn't sink. I said, well, what, do you, what do you draw? You know, what, do you, what parts of the submarines are you drawing? Mm. But it wasn't about designing us. What we think about it was the function of the submarine, making sure it doesn't sink. And I said, mm. you'd need some glass down there in the submarine corporation, I'm sure. What about the portholes down the side? Can we make portholes? And he said, no, there is no light from the outside that gets in mm. a submarine or a destroyer. He was working on the destroyers. There's no light that gets inside the destroyer from the outside. There's no yeah. windows except for what the captain looks through in the front, the yeah. windshield. Yeah. I said, surely in the officer's mess there's a chandelier. And he said, no, there's no glass on the inside. <laughs> and any glass that would be on the inside as far as the drinkware and tableware and all that kind of stuff has come from another boat, a ship they inherit it from some other ship. No light goes inside, so they've, they have trouble with... Uh, vitamin B levels. Mm. I know engineering Mm. a little bit. Mm. Designing and engineering is a very interesting set of words. Mm -mm. It's not the same thing. Although what you do if you've got working with a client is you're solving a set of problems, Mm. call it whatever you like. Mm. doesn't matter about the words. Solving a set of problems for the client. The client's Mm. got a thing that they want. Mm. The submarine has a set of parameters that yeah, needs yeah. to be fulfilled and that engineer designer mm. sets out to fulfill those so mm. in the sense it's the same sort of thing but the, the engineer needs to be sure and i think that's the difference between perhaps the craft mm. which is handwork mm. art which is mind work and handwork 
and the engineer. You can't necessarily be sure, I don't think, in... You mentioned the A word as separate to the C word. Really? I don't... <laughs> just, for, just for the record, Nick is rolling his eyes. <laughs> yeah, because there are a number of ways in glass particularly, but in other ways, in other materials as well, to make art out of craft. I mentioned one of them before. The, the most common ways in glass to make art out of craft because we all use craft to produce whatever we're doing. A painter crafts the picture. A woodworker crafts a set of drawers. A glass worker crafts the glass, you know, the bottle. We all use craft to make things. A brick, a bricklayer crafts a wall. A gardener crafts a garden. A dentist crafts a tooth. A surgeon crafts the incision. Everybody uses craft to do what they do. But then to elevate it to the status of art, so it goes into an art gallery and becomes something, you know, amazing. There are ways of getting there. And in glass, you know, one of the most common ways is to add a lot of colour. Another common way is to put a very small base on it. Another very common way is to make it bigger. Another, the, the, the best way is to talk about it a lot. To give it a story. Give it a story. Just talk about it. And But the most effective way is to sit down and wait. And sometime in the future, somebody will pick it up and give it status by putting it in an art gallery or a museum or something. But none of them have got anything to do with the craft. And the craft is the active element of it all. Art doesn't fucking happen with nothing else. <laughs> did I say that out loud? Yeah, totally. Did. <laughs> Eloquently. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I find it really annoying. But, like I said to start off with, when you're presenting something that you've made, it's all about the audience, the, the venue, and the intent. I think art has an idea at, it, as a, at its heart as opposed to an object. Really? I think maybe like the Venus of Willendorf. What was that craft person thinking? Really were they thinking about... Really were they thinking about the, the way that it's interpreted these days? Or was he carving a naked Sheila? <laughs> Bit of pornography, you reckon? Well, I don't know. I'm not saying one or the other. I'm saying... How do we know what the craftsperson intent was? You know, and we can give it all you're, sorts. You're saying of, it's in the eye of the beholder. If somebody says, though, well, I think the artist is a craftsperson first. Yeah. yeah. And probably always a craftsperson because they're making something. Mm. It's somebody else down the line or even at the time that says, okay, no, we, we elevate. Yeah. We yeah. say this is art. And you're saying, well, bullshit, bullshit. Craft is the thing. Craft is what our culture is about. And how it's read is about the culture that ends up in the time. You know, like the Venus of Willendorf is an absolutely gorgeous object. I've never seen it in real life, but I've seen the pictures. I wish I could see it in real life. And in which case, I'd like to pick it up and handle it. And feel real weight, real texture. I'd like to see it as a real thing in an environment. I'd like to feel it you know, next to me in the same space. I would love to feel it as a craftsperson feels it. And you can have a look at a picture of it and you can think, oh, that thing is just beautiful. I would never say what it was about. That is 
If it was about something, it is extremely personal to the craftsperson or to some academic who wants to make stuff up. And I've, I've always had trouble with that interpretation thing, partly because I'm, well, probably entirely because I'm not academic and I think it's all conjecture. There's nothing real about it. You could compare and contrast Venus with the painting that's happened before the, the other contemporaries and the ones that come after. So mm. that, that painting could be a pivot. You mm. know, all of a sudden the technique's changed or a yeah. sense of the subject matter's changed. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that painting has worth because it changes how people look at the world. And that's all craft, right? Well, um, yeah. New material. I'm saying that's that's the interpretation, actually. Yeah, okay, so it could be that, but it could also be the way we see ourselves. And we see ourselves through the craft and and the way that we interpret the craft and the way the story is, like the cave paintings, you know, there's all sorts of stuff about the cave paintings, but I think that that's, you know, the person that actually did the paintings, you know, craft people that were laying on some ochre about their real environment, real life, what's happening outside, the way they've been interpreted or used is through some sort of religious thing interpretation the dark crafts and so you know that that's the way they're interpreted now the way that they're understood now the way that people discuss them now i don't know that the dude in the cave with the light however he got the light was thinking about god or anything other than the zebra or the probably wondering where his next meal was coming from yeah, and his ability or their ability or her ability to actually craft the picture on the wall is a total wonder, absolute wonder that somebody would have the ability to, for the first time ever, create an image somehow or another. That's my wonder. And I think it's equally as wonderful as any other wonder that other people have. But the uh, interpretation of it, I'm going to leave that just completely out of it because I think that could be true and i think that it could be bullshit (laughs) okay how can people get in touch with you and see your work drop by anytime knock on the door give us a call get in touch on the interwebs (laughs) yeah nickmountglass.com.au yeah Yeah. that sounds good Uh, shall i pass out everyone your phone number no. They just knock on the door. No, just the, on the, on the email is <laughs> good. Stay on the, the email is good, yeah. Have we left anything else out? Is there anything you want to add? Make stuff. The people that you see that are enjoying their whole lives as much as anybody else, you know, are the people that are making stuff, playing sport. Sport is a craft. It's definitely a craft. It's got a there's raw material there there's teamwork there's process there's rules all that kind of stuff there's there's a there's a goal there's a win and lose there's all that kind of stuff that makes a perfect craft a fabulous craft and then there's all those people that are focused on it you know next weekend grand final time our culture will be consumed with craft and they just don't know it and i think there you go for not Greater Western Sydney Cheetah. Uh, go Tigers. Yeah, the Tigers. Go Tigers, yeah. Got money on it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, because money's the darkest craft of all. Thank you so much, Nick Mount, for that wonderful conversation. Really appreciate your time. This has been an episode of the Designer Maker Revolution. I'm Adrian Potter. You can get hold of me on make at designermakerrevolution.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the Designer Maker Revolution, you can leave a five-star review. And of course, share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Cheers.